Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Moira Blumenthal. Moira is a producer and director with several decades of theatre experience. Her latest production of Timothy Daly's The Man in the Attic recently finished at the Eternity Theatre. Moira, it's a pleasure to have you on the Thank show. You. Thank you. Thank for, you for, for doing this. I'm looking at some of your previous plays that you've done, uh, The Chosen and My Name is Ashalev, both based off novels by Chaim Potok. Do you have a, a Victor Gordon's You Will Not Play Wagner? Do you have a do you have a, f- a focus on Jewish theatre, or is that arisen naturally in some sense? It became a mission statement. <clears throat> I didn't start with my theatre career, although it's strange that when I look back uh, over the years, I've done a lot of Jewish theatre. Originally in South Africa, <clears throat> probably the first one was a play by an Israeli called Joshua Sobel, which was called Ghetto. And that's when I was just coming back into theatre as a young adult. Um, I'd been in theatre as a young person and then uh, got married and had children and left theatre for many years. So one of the first ones that I came back into professional theatre was Joshua Sobel's Ghetto. Beautiful big play about the Vilna Ghetto, um, which housed a group of artists and the only way they could keep alive was by getting a work permit. So they created a group of performers and they used to perform for the inmates. Um, This play has been done because it's got a huge cast. It was done by the Royal National Theatre in London and we did it in South Africa. So to get back to why Jewish theatre actually really don't know. Um, It's probably me trying to tell my stories. Um, There was a determined decision, actually, um, about 12 years ago when I was now resident in Australia, um, that I would concentrate on Jewish theatre. Before that, it had just happened. Just happened. Mm. Would would you say when you... um, talk about getting married and having kids and leaving the theatre and then coming back. What was, was there a, a moment for you in early life when you felt like, yes, theatre is for me? You know, it's hard to define. I don't think there was one decision, but if you look back at my childhood, um, I was doing theatre at primary school, which was probably I was 10, 11, 12 years old. I even got clippings. We would gather together as a group of kids and we'd go into the playground and make up plays. So it was very much a life goal, but I I don't remember, you know, an an analytical decision saying Mm -hmm. I'm going to do theatre. I loved telling stories and I loved um, enacting stories. I loved the fantasy and the magic. And I think it's pretty elemental to to, to people, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they're doing. They're living their lives and trying to create a story at the same time as telling stories. Um, and that, that, that is something that's fundamental. It doesn't have to be learned. It doesn't have to be uh, uh, analytically decided upon. 
I think it's pretty fundamental. I mean, you're asking a question like, what 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 makes an artist? I mean, why do you why do you start? My dad was a violinist. There's a picture of him over there. He brought his violin from <clears throat> from uh, Lithuania when he emigrated to South Africa at the turn of the twentieth um, century. So, and a singer. Why do people? Why does an artist actually produce art? Mm. Um, I would love to know the answer to that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, But for you, at least, it was always like a natural way of life. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So primary school, you're already producing plays in the school, in the schoolyard, and then high school, that continues? Absolutely. I, you know, I learned drama with various teachers and uh, did various festivals. Uh, I was doing, you know, it's strange, this Jewish theatre thing is obviously a thread when, when, I, when I start looking at it, when I was a... Uh, Matriculant, so I must have been 15, 16. I was hired to do a professional play um, with a group of Jewish people. I mean, I don't know who they were. There must have been some Jewish organisation. But there I was doing a professional play which had a Jewish theme. theme. I can't remember what it was. So, yes, so my link to Judaism has been very much um, through the stories. So th- that's, that is clearly the Jewish theatre as a conscious thing is more recent, but obviously it's been going on. Yes, that's throughout. good. Mm-hmm. And then after, your, after you finished high school, what was next for you? I went to university um, and I, I had been doing professional theatre work up until that point and then went to university. I couldn't... Unfortunately, I wanted to study drama, but growing up in, in Johannesburg, there was no drama department at the University of the Witwatersrand, mm-hmm. and my parents wouldn't send me to Cape Town, which actually had the only drama department in the country. Um, so I continued studying privately. I studied with a, a uh, also an immigrant to South Africa, a um, French Jew who probably had left... I don't remember, after the war. Her name was Ruth Oppenheim, and she was very um, influential in, in in guiding me in terms of my consciousness, you know, of, mm-hmm. of what sort of theatre um, I wanted to do. What sort of theatre was Ruth Oppenheim in? Well, you know, she studied method acting, which was, which was a specific way of approaching the art. Um, she was also very... European, so there were people like Brecht and Pirandello and Camus, those sort of names, um, which we actually hadn't heard in South Africa. South Africa was quite a backwards; it was a parochial um, colony. Um, what sort of what sort of plays were popular in South Africa? Well, you see, the, the, that's that's a difficult one because when I was growing up in in that era in the fifties, we were really right in the middle of the apartheid era. Hmm. So you say, what sort of plays? Um, international plays to a certain extent uh, but a lot of the international work had been banned because the artists it was a boycott the same way as the South Africans weren't allowed to fly via where did they stop them from flying we had to go via 
They weren't allowed to land in London, I think. Really? Yeah. So there was, there was, and of course, you know that Australian was instrumental in a lot of sports bands. This was the way the world was expressing their dissatisfaction, their dislike of the apartheid regime. Mm. So similarly, in the arts, there were international artists who refused to let their work be done in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of work that. Um, I wasn't seeing and I wasn't aware of. There was a lot of, um, well, television's another story because television was very late in coming into effect in South Africa, which was, again, a government ploy to keep away from the masses, the black masses, what the real world looked like. Mm. So it was a particular landscape. Of course, there were South African artists, Athel Fugard, you may know that name. He was a um, he was one of the people who voiced his dissatisfaction internationally, um, and eventually left South Africa. So we did a lot of his work, and then a lot of work like what Ruth Oppenheim was doing. You know, which was uh, old classics, um, international old classics, not contemporary work because the contemporary work had problems mm-hmm. now that an- another example is Joshua Sobel okay Israeli playwright internationally very revered we wanted to do his play Ghetto which I've spoken about and we wanted to do it I had at that stage was part partnering an American who was working for the Performing Arts Council of Transvaal mm-hmm. Pact it was called which was a area of South Africa and Joshua Sobel refused to give us permission to do ghetto because of the apartheid situation. Well, you know, apartheid um, was definitely not well looked on by the Jews. You know, it was Mm. another form of um, discrimination to to, to a great extent. Um, So... I phoned Joshua Sobel. Um, don't quite know how I managed it because I was, I'd was i come back into professional theatre and I had to find the words to tell him that if we don't use theatre to illuminate the problems in society, what's the point of theatre? And he heard me and he gave us the rights and we did it. Wow. But his first impulse was we weren't permitted to do it. We were, we were not going to be given rights. You were in Johannesburg uh-huh. at the time? Wow. And in the end, you put on this production of Ghetto. Put on a big production of Ghetto. Um, wonderful story. Um, he's just written a new play, by the way, which I'm very curious about. I will be investigating it for down the track somewhere. It's a play about Israel and Palestine. Mm. So um, that's the environment that I grew up in, um, working with the Performing Arts Council of the Transvaal at that stage. No, that's not true. Um, that was later. So, I, I, as I said, I, I, I met my husband and married and had three children. Right. And I studied some more at that stage. I was studying, getting a diploma in speech and drama. Um, I went and did an English degree. So theatre mm. was on a back burner for many years while the kids were growing up and I was being a mother. Mm-hmm. But there was always something missing. There was a hole in the middle of my being and I knew it. Um, there was, you know, when you're a creative person, you actually need to create. It's, it's, a, it's a physical need, um, as any artist will tell you. It's a driving need. It's, it's often very uncomfortable. 
particularly for artists who can't find platforms, you mm. know, and there are many of those around, many. Many artists who can't find platforms. Platforms on which to perform. Do, do you mean like they, they, they can't, can't find a medium to work in? They can't earn a living. Mm. They're not supported sufficiently by this government. Um, if you're in Europe, Germany particularly, how's mm. that for the irony? <laughs> a lot of Australians go to Germany. Okay, they go to Berlin, which is a center of great art form. We've got a, a Jewish Australian, um, Barry Kosky, okay, great theater practitioner who left in protest to the fact that he didn't get the support that he needed here. In Germany, they will get a pension, they will get subsidized, they will become part of a company. If they're working for the opera, they'll be be paid um, a stipend, a, a, a regular salary. So it's a and the same as in Europe is a very different approach. The government subsidizes the cost of seats, so it's not so expensive to go mm-hmm. to, not so expensive to go to the opera, for example, or to go to theatre. So here we are a bit of a cultural desert, mm-hmm. as we were in South Africa. So how did I get to that? We were talking about uh, the differences between Europe and, and, and Australia. Australia so there are many Australians who've left and are st- who still leave to go and practice elsewhere. And, and I think the reason for that was you were saying that if you're an artist, you have a, a need to create, which is a physical need, a driving need. And then if, if you don't have a, a platform, an outlet, yeah, it could be really, really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that when you during that period in your life when you were raising your family mm-hmm. you felt like you weren't creating art you weren't making well theater. you know uh, there's something strange about creation I think bringing up children is is obviously is a form of creation and it felt like I was sublimating you know my need to create through bringing up children and running a family but it reached a point where you know they don't need you anymore so when my daughter was writing the trick I started to have the need to go back to to doing theatre. Mm. Um, I used to play the piano, but it was never, I never had that sort of a skill, you know, because my dad was a musician. Mm. Um, and that's when I went back into theatre. I was probably um, in my 40s um, and I had been studying and uh, I met an American who'd come out to South Africa. He'd come out for Disney to do something in South Africa. Um, probably in the 60s at this stage. No, must have been later, 70s. Where were you living at the time? I was still in Johannesburg, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and this man was producing theatre for Performing Arts Council of the Transvaal and I was going to watch his plays and there was something about his work that struck me as very sophisticated and different. Well, it was because he was an American practitioner He'd come from a different training base. So I started following his work. And one day I saw something in um, a theatre and at, at at the end of the play I went up to him and said, I want to work with you. I'll make your coffee. I'll do whatever you need in order for me to learn. And basically that's what I did. Um, I shadowed him for nearly three years. I wow. went 
to maybe three, four plays a year, which was, you know, a play takes like a month to six weeks of rehearsals. And I worked damn hard, you know, just, and he wouldn't let me do a thing. I was just basically sitting and watching and observing mm-hmm. until eventually the apartheid situation became tricky and there was a time for crossroads for a lot of people and his crossroads were going back to the States, which he did. And there I was left um, with a lot of theoretical knowledge, but nothing practical, no hands-on knowledge. At this point, the last time you'd, you'd thrown your own show was a decade or two in the past? I didn't get that, was what? At, at this point, you've, mm. you've been shouting this guy for three years. The guy yeah, from Disney, yeah, yeah. And you're... And you're I had done nothing. I'd done no, no theatre. So he left and... Um, I just took the bull by the horns and started. He the, the the last thing that he did was a play by David Hare called Oliana, Oliana, which was a story about sexual harassment, and I watched him do it. And that's where the producing came in. You know, I helped him produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another show called Falsettos, which I helped him on. So I helped him on a lot of. He started working independently and I started helping him. Then he left for the States Mm -hmm. and I picked up these shows and I redid them and I did them in other centres. I did them in Pretoria, for example. So I was starting to learn. I did a a theatre production called Poetry Alive. I took the the HSC syllabus of poems. We had a core syllabus that all the schools did of poetry and we took, I don't know, 20 poems and we... Dramatised them. Mm-hmm. Amazing. It was an amazing show, that. And we took that to schools. So I was slowly starting to find my own way as a director. Well, when did the decision come to move from South Africa to Australia? Well, it was there for a long time. You know, it was in the 70s when there was the um, Soweto riots, when the, the blacks were rioting in protest of having to learn um, have school in the language of the oppressor in Afrikaans and they protested mm-hmm. outside a police station. The police opened fire on them and killed a lot of them. And that's when things started turning. And at that stage, my father-in-law, who I've spoken about, Sasha Blumenthal, um, said to us, he said, it's time to leave. He said, you cannot suppress a nation. This has got to change. So, of course, he'd watched what had happened to Israel. He'd been through the whole of the Second World War. Um, he, he, re, he was very politically astute, very politically aware. Um, he was often bringing Israeli politicians into South Africa to raise funds, you know, for the establishment of the state. And he was being watched by the Secret Service in South Africa. So there was this whole background. We lived an interesting life in South Africa. <laughs> This was your father-in-law? My father-in-law, yep. And in the 70s, he said it's time to go, okay? But it took us a long time to unpack, you know, our businesses and the children we wanted to let them finish their education. So it took us nearly 20 years, you know, to get out. We left in 1996. Um, So it it was a pity. I don't know if it was a pity. It's hard. You know, who knows what's the right time? Who knows, you know, what, what journey one has to take? Sure. Yeah. And and then when you came to Australia, your, did, you, did you find that your, the way you, uh, your theatre work was, was playing out was, was radically different? Did you find the environment here 
conducive to Look, it, it was what had happened for me, which was just, you know, you make your own luck. You know, there's that wonderful expression, the, the more you practice, the luckier you get, you mm. know. So what, what happened was when I was coming to Australia, um, we came, the family came sort of separately. My eldest son came first. We had to get him out of South Africa because they were, they were, um, they were, what's the word, choosing men, young boys, to fight the war in um, Angola, which is West Africa. Um, there was a, there was a, there were border wars, and we definitely didn't want him fighting a war that we had nothing, no interest in. Mm. So we told him to go. You know, we already had our visas, and we sent him out before we were ready to go. So I would visit him. He was here for about five years. So I'd come backwards and forwards um, with chicken soup and whatever else I could get on the plane. <laughs> um, and when I was here, I was seeing theatres and I was seeing theatre people and going to theatres and making contacts, yeah. right? And I made a couple of very important contacts in that they were plays. This man, for example, Timothy Daly, had a play called Kafka Dancers, which is a story about Franz Kafka, the Jewish writer. There you go, another Jewish play. Um, and I went to see it. It's a play that launched Kate Blanchett. She it was her first professional play. Right. And I was so impressed with it that I negotiated to take the play back to South Africa because I was still in South Africa, but I was visiting here. So I did that with Kafka Dancers, and that play won a National South African Award. This playwright is now the same playwright who's done The Man in the Attic. So you see what happens, you know, you, you make your luck and your life goes around. It's interesting in retrospect mm -hmm. to look at how these things happen. Mm -hmm. And I did various other plays. There was another one called um, Two Weeks with a Queen, which was a gorgeous Australian play um, about a young boy who goes to visit the Queen in England because his brother's ill and he reckons the only way he can help his brother is by getting the best doctor in the world and surely the Queen must have the best doctor in the world. <laughs> Beautiful play. And I saw this at the Sydney Theatre Company and I watched a rehearsal and I said I'd love to take this to South Africa. So I was doing work as I, so you see the, 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 the vision and the mission or the passion was always there, you know, it was always of interest to me. Whatever the situation I was in, I was always manipulating, negotiating, thinking, you know, working on what, what interested me. Mm -hmm. And that that was your first time working with Timothy Daly, the playwright. Mm -hmm. And you've just finished a, a run of his uh, Man in the Attic mm -hmm. at the Eternity, uh -huh. which I, I had the pleasure of, of seeing. Mm -hmm. When when did you um, first come across this play? And when was it that you decided you wanted to? I came it? across this play about six to seven years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I had started a an application to be part of a season at the Bondi Pavilion. We're trying to create independent theatre and I offered this play and they accepted it. And then Timothy came back to me to say we couldn't use it because it had an option on it to be made into a film. 
So we withdrew it and we didn't use it. This was when? It's about six years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, last year, when I'd finished doing You Will Not Play Wagner, I was approached by the theatre, what am I, I going to offer them for 2018? And um, I had nothing. And I woke up one morning and I suddenly flashed to Timothy Daly and the man in the attic. Mm-hmm. So I sent a very early email to L.A. where he was and said, what's going on with the man in the attic? And he said, as chance would have it, I've just been given rights to do the play, so the, the option on film has been taken off. So there you go. So I said, okay, send it to me. So he sent me a copy, and I said, I love it, I want to do it, and that was that was it. So, again, you know, the harder you practice, the luckier you get. Mm-hmm. So it was just... Just it was, as you know, the word bashat. It was bashat that we do the play, at this stage. And what was it? Were there particular moments in the play that was did it for you? That were like wow. Well, yes, and this is a frustration. Um, there was a moment where he plays some music. Uh, she plays the wife plays music on her radiogram and the man in the attic who's imprisoned in the Would, attic. Do you, want, do you want to give a brief outline of the play real quick? Well, the story is about a German couple in northern Germany who find a Jew hiding in the forest. It's their end of the war. It's 1945, April. And the Americans are arriving on one side and the, and the Russians on the other. And the wife brings him into their house and hides him in the attic. Um, and this, hence the title, The Man in the Attic. They found out that he's a Jew. And they also find out that he is a watchmaker and a jeweller. And if they bring him stuff to fix and repair, they can then use that stuff to barter on the black market and change for food. And that's how people lived. There was no economy. The whole of Germany was collapsed. So they kept him hidden in the attic, um, using him. And um, the war then officially finishes. Um, Hitler is found dead and the wife says now it's time to let him go and the husband says no the war's still going on for him he doesn't know anything about it he's up in the attic so there's this moral dilemma and this is what the play's all about mm-hmm. so what was the moment for you that, that the moment through? was just a, a very romantic moment the, the the man in the attic and the wife below develop a relationship because mm-hmm. they talk to each other and he's a very dignified educated good man you know and she is living with this 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 opportunist of a husband Mm. Um, and she develops a relationship and at one stage he hears some music being played and he says put it louder and I chose a piece of tango because I loved the music I'd heard it somewhere and he starts dancing upstairs in the attic to he's got a mannequin a dressmaker's mannequin and he dances with the mannequin to the tango and she hears and she says, are you dancing? And he says, yes, I'm dancing. Um, but my partner's a little bit stiff. <laughs> and she says, I'm a little bit stiff as well. But I didn't achieve exactly what I wanted because I wanted the actress to dance downstairs as he was dancing upstairs. Mm-hmm. But there was a conflict of motives, which one gets sometimes when you're in the middle of a rehearsal period and you really don't want to ask me about that because that could take another hour. Mm -hmm. I could not get the actress to do what I wanted her to do. Mm -hmm. But that moment to me was beautiful. You know, these two human beings from totally different um, enemies, basically, you know, Mm. 
although she wasn't she really she was just a human being battling to survive you know coming together through music you know and I loved that moment it, it to me was a highlight moment for me in the play it, it was very beautiful for me I remember the moment you're you're talking about and it was very beautiful for me how um so much of the play has because uh you only have one set and doesn't move and the set is you've got the downstairs room in the in the main in the house and then you've got the upstairs room where the the Jewish watchmaker is being kept and then you have like next door and all of those things are visible uh, on the stage and then anything else that happens somewhere else is told in narrative it's true. so we stay in the house mm-hmm. the whole time mm-hmm. i found that really powerful and this moment where the where he was dancing upstairs with the, the mannequin, mannequin and, and she was downstairs. And they're, like, I think they'd sealed off the attic at that point. Like mm-hmm. they'd, so they're really in two totally different worlds, mm-hmm. but also together. Mm-hmm. I thought that was, that was very powerfully brought out, that mm-hmm. dynamic of the play that just kept mm-hmm. recurring. I loved that moment. I would have made more of it, you know, if I'd had the cooperation of the actress, which I didn't have. Mm-hmm. Because to me that was um, an important moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you, would you um, when you were like trying to create the uh, that that whole setup on on stage, was it were the instructions clear about uh, like within the play itself on positioning, or did you have to come up with a lot of that yourself? It's called directing. <laughs> That's called directing. Yeah. No, there was nothing. There's particularly in modern scripts. There's never any. Very rarely are there stage directions. Really. Yeah, there's no there's no directions for the set. Nothing that that's all put together by the creative team, who's the set designer and me, mm-hmm. the sound designer or composer, the lighting designer. You know, so there's nothing. It's a, it's a blank page basically. You know, with some dialogue mm-hmm. and an imagination. You know, so no, we I, I was lucky. I had some really good good supportive team very um, creative, supportive team. You know. so, something I really liked about the way that that whole thing came together with the, the set being divided the way it was and every, all the action taking place in the one scene was there were these um, very vivid descriptions of events that were going on outside the house and they were, it, they were sort of told as narrative by the, by the actors at various points. And one of the early ones, I remember the, um, the wife uh, says that you can't fully describe an air raid and that moment really, um, really had a had a punch for me because it's so so much of the of that of the of the play is about that trying to capture the outside world and like explain it, but not doing a very good job of it, and always trying to capture it with your words, which I really felt like fed in really well with that. That design. it's wonderful that you were that sensitive to it. You know, it's um, good audience. You know, because audience don't always respond the way you want them to you know mm-hmm. they often are are, are um, sunken into their own worlds you know or they're tired or they're hungry or they've just had a fight with their partner so you haven't got a blank slate right so it, it's good that you were, were, were being that responsive well, right? thank you yeah I certainly um I, I, I certainly tried to set everything else aside when I come and well watch you the show. achieved it and very I'd say. Sixty percent of the audience don't. I think we get lucky if we get forty. But no, that's not true. Maybe I'm a being being a bit harsh. They were, they were a, a, a particularly absorbed audience. This 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 audience this yeah, time around. This, this, yeah, yeah. This, this season. 
What do you what do you look for in an audience? Like, do you look for them? That's a hard one. They they were very still, you know, very absorbed. Mm-hmm. You know, people hardly moved. So we obviously had their attention, and we kept them with us. You know, so that's one of the physical manifestations that one um, notices. But uh, you you know, the interaction between actors and audience is one of the magic and one of the fascinations of doing theatre. Um, it's a live energy. It's the mm-hmm. same as what's happening now. It's a live energy. And I believe, you know, this is why live performance is so important for human beings. I think it feeds. I think we feed off each other. We feed off that energy. And when you've got a group of people, you know, like that, mm-hmm. you know, and they're all agreeing that they're going to follow that story, that's a very magical um Hi, you know, if you ask mm-hmm. why does I why do I do it, it's probably for that reason, not for any other. Well, it's very interesting you talk about this, um, the, the energy that's going between the audience and the people on stage, because I've been thinking um, recently about this idea that when uh, when you're, any character is, is acting something out on stage, part of what they're trying to do is, is embody and represent a full human, and another part of what they're, they're trying to do is is pluck at the the particular heartstring of each audience member that's tuned to that, and and those are in a in a sense almost conflicting aims because one of them is about uh, narrative and archetypal simplicity, and the other is about uh, intricacy and in, in detail and you know often neurosis. And so, um, what something I liked about Man in the Attic was when when we start off, we've got a few people who are just sort of struggling at, along and very relatable and, and dealing with very simple and specific things. Like their the husband and wife are just trying to deal with like Germany's collapse and, and feeding themselves. And then the man upstairs is, uh, he's just like cleaning up. He's like making an account of what's there. It's very simple and prosaic. And then as the, um, as the play progresses, that the, the individual characters who start off in some sense like quite similar to each other and to us, they go off on their, their narrative tangents. And so you find that while the, the husband's going out, he says something like, um, uh, in, in, a, in an environment like this, only an animal survives. And then he makes that choice that he's going to consciously be the most powerful predator he can, and that's going to be his mode of survival. And then the man upstairs sort of takes the entirely an entirely different track and throws himself into astronomy and becomes completely removed from this world and like cast into the stars. And that, that, that sense that at any point, like all the people are being maintained as like individual full humans, but then you also get to explore like the extremities of the human experience and without, without, getting lost in them, I, just, I found that really, really powerful in this work. Well, you're, you're an exceptional human being. You know, you've, you, you're understanding at a level which is not common. You know, you are tapping and you're listening at a level which is not ordinary, you know. So well you. done you, <laughs> you know. You, you, you are the perfect audience, Perfect audience. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, Mara. you really did understand the play. So it was uh, for audience like you. It's an absolute pleasure. You know, uh, I will. I will tell the playwright who's going to be seeing me next week uh, that your responses were just what he would have wanted. Please, please pass on my, my deep thanks for the play. I will. When when you're when you're making this work, did you have a particular target that you had constantly in mind that you were building towards? 
you know, you tap into, you try and tap into the music or the soul of the piece, you mm-hmm. know. Um, it's not an analytical thing, you know. You, you try and hold on to that from the moment you read it. Um, you get the obvious themes, you know, and motivations and, you know, the words become quite solid, you know. It's a story about choices and cho- and ethical choices and choices of how to survive, but that's all words, you know. There's an underlying music to to some writing, most writing. Mm-hmm. Timothy is particularly poetic, um, and it it's your imperative as a director to try and hold on to that and get the actors to hold on to it. You know, I'm not sure if they always achieved it. Um, we're going to do this again. We're going to do it in Melbourne, and I think. I'd be the second time you do a play is much easier, you know. Much easier. Much easier because you've gotten rid of the mechanics, mm. you know, and you can start looking for the soul, you know. When's when are you uh, planning to do? Well, the probably again? next year. Probably, probably next year. Mm. Okay, cool. And that'll be will that be up on the website if people want to come and see it in Melbourne? Oh yeah. What's what's the best way to find tickets for Man in the Attic next year? Website just. To Google Man in the Attic in Melbourne, you know, we haven't got it placed yet. I've got a partner there right now who's looking for, you know, a partnership such as Shalom College to mm-hmm. help us um, put it on. Okay. And so if someone went to the Shalom College website, they'd have information mm, No. I would just, no, because it'll be a different organisation. Ah, okay. You, know? you don't know who's going to be. I'm not sure who the organisation's going to be here. Okay. Mm. Tell me, you have a uh, another work coming up, The God of Isaac. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did where did you first stumble across this piece and how did how did it move you? Well, stumble is the right word. Again, you know, I was approached this year. What have you got for next year? You know, got nothing. Start looking. You know, <laughs> so I go to my sources. There's a playwright called James Sherman, Jewish fellow, obviously. In although not obviously, Timothy's not Jewish. Um, resides in Chicago. And I did a play of his called From Door to Door at the Jewish Museum maybe six, seven years ago, just in their little theatrette. And I loved his work. He's quite a well-known playwright. He's done a lot of Jewish stuff. Um, James Sherman, his name is. Mm-hmm. So I looked at his website and I communicated with him. And I said, I'm looking for something. What can you suggest? He said, have a look at this, it's just being redone. It's an older play, but people are revising it now because it's a question of neo-Nazism, the rise of neo-Nazism. It's a question of identity. There's a young Jewish man who's the lead, and his problem is he says he doesn't know what it is to be Jewish, and that's what the play is all about. What actually is it to be Jewish? Explain it to me. It's a very funny play. It's got a lot of Jewish humour. It's got a Jewish mother. In the audience, in the audience, she's in sitting. The audience. In the audience, she's sitting. She's coming to listen to his play. So there's a lot of shtick, you know, the old Jewish humour. So could could you tell us just uh, the the basic outline of what the he God of just, Isaac is he, about? He he says he's. She says you're Jewish. Well, what do you mean? What it is to be Jewish? You you're Jewish. You're born Jewish, and you'll die Jewish. This is a mother's point of view, but he wants more. Right. So he visits various people. He visits a rabbi. Yeah. You know, who refers him to many books, refers him to the Torah. He visits a a tailor. He wants his pants to be altered, and he sees the tailor's got a 
concentration camp number on his arm. And this Skokie incident is about to happen, which catapults him into really wanting to know. He, he feels un- uncomfortable mm-hmm. that this this uh, demonstration is going to happen in his town. So, so we have we have the sort of the inner journey of this this guy, the lead, trying to grapple with his own Jewish identity yes, yes. and then we have this sort of the broader outside political narrative of the Skokie which sets Skokie him going in this because he's trying to respond to it and he doesn't so, know how to respond so for people who aren't familiar with the the Skokie what was it March right it's it's there in the script I feel they were told told about it what uh, for for people listening now at home could you give us a brief I actually haven't done history? any research on it no? but many people like you and my senior at the um, Shalom College knew absolutely about it, so mm-hmm. it's apparently quite a well-known incident. So for you, the the grab for this piece for this piece is less the the historical thing as much as the inner journey of the guy. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I'm I'm on the same journey and will be for the rest of my life. I don't know what it is to be Jewish. <laughs> Yeah. Do you do you feel sometimes like you're approaching that with your with your theatre and then getting asymptotically closer? You, when you look back at what you've done at various stages of your life, you've done it for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. You know? Could, what do you mean by that? Well, you seem to do work that's applied to you at that stage of your life. There, there's some, there's some bigger force going on. Right. You know, there's some destiny. All I know is this story about his journey to to discovery of his essential nature is exactly where I have been for the last couple of years. I'm not going to get an answer, you know, but I'm going to have a couple of good laughs on the way. And a lot of it is very familiar, you know. And I'm sure every school kid will have been going through a similar journey. So it's going to be an audience pleaser, you know. Mm -hmm. The people at Shalom are quite excited about it because they like to appeal to the younger people. You know, that's obviously everybody's challenge now is to find um, the next generation, you know. Do you feel that sometimes that when you're making the work, there are there are moments where that that sort of uh, that there's an intimation of a response to that answer for you, like in in a sense for a moment you're like, oh, I almost feel like that the answer to this this question, and then it then it just departs again with the, the moment. particular question. Well, I, I was thinking you were saying that in in some sense your your play your. I think the play the work the work that you do reflects where you are as a human being at mm-hmm. that time. You know. Um, and I couldn't get more. I, I've had this being said to me by other artists as well. You know, you seem to be, you seem to gravitate towards work which is appropriate to you at a particular stage and age. It must be, you know, your creative being. So your interests change. I, I cannot be more specific. I can't even find an example to tell you about that. You it's, it's interesting. I've actually I've I've found this in my own work because I. Very embarrassingly, I have a have a graphic novel that I've been Fabulous. on again, off again, like working on just Fabulous. tiny amount, mm. and I and I find that um, I, whatever what I'm doing in the scene, when I'm, I'll start I'll start writing a scene and it'll just come to me and I'm working on it, working on it, and then a, a couple of months later I'll notice like oh what I was actually working out was you know this my my question about this and it's a really specific thing that's like very pressing at there the time. is a different there is a different dynamic there is a consciousness you know that um we're not tapping into if you try and tap into it analytically you're going to get nowhere it's an instinct you know mm-hmm. um and that's what you're talking about at the time that you're writing these scenes instinctively 
you are trying to express something and only later when you look back at it you, you know I think it's in here Kierkegaard or somebody said life can only be lived forward but can only be understood backwards you know I've heard that before I don't yeah, know I think I it's know. here I've got it as one of my my introduction for some Kierkegaard, reason that, yeah. that's interesting to me yeah so when you because you can only you can only live it forward and understand it backwards therefore it follows that to some extent you're, you're stuck following your intuition because you if you can follow your intuition you're lucky you're lucky. you can tap into it Right. If you can let it go and just tap into it and you don't be too analytical. If you be too analytical, you'd just never move. You know, you'd be stuck. You'd just be stuck. Um, I, I want to ask you about the, the theater theater as a, as a form of, uh, both of healing, both for yourself and oh, for yes. people experiencing it. I think that every child should be doing art. Every single child on this planet should be forced, should be dragged <laughs> to some art form. <laughs> and not sport either, unless sport is an art form. You know, I mean, I think some sport could be considered an art form. Mm-hmm. Um, Every child should be forced to do art. There's no question. No question. It should be. Look, slowly but surely, the government comes around to it. You know, mm-hmm. they put drama in schools, they put art classes, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's very marginalized. You know, yeah. it's, it's so marginalized. You know, what do children do? They draw with crayons, you know. They. they they create scenes. They do plays. You know, what do they do? They're creating worlds all the time until they stopped and told, you've now got to earn a living. So no more imagination. You know, no more stories. Sad. That's, that's the story. Mm-hmm. On it goes. What, okay, so if you had to, if you were thinking of a, of a school from the ground up and you got to put art in it in whatever way you wanted, how, how would that look? Well, it's a problem because well, it just it would have to be a subject. I don't know how you how you negotiate getting children. They should probably start formal classes, things like dare I say, maths, mm-hmm. um, commerce. Much later, the early years to me should be absolutely sunk into art. I think that there are schools that do that. Mm-hmm. People like Rudolf Steiner, I think there are schools who actually do that, you know. Let them just express what they want to, what they see of the world, you know, and try and tap into some creative urge. It's interesting when you say that the early years should be dedicated to creativity more. Uh, a couple of things spring to mind. One is the um, well-known phenomenon where any language you learn before the age of 12 becomes another natural language for you. And after that, it becomes, you know, you have to learn that it's a second language. And then the other thing that springs to mind is that um, in Russian primary schools, it was the case, I don't know if it still is, but it was the case that uh, Russians only started primary school uh, late, like I think seven or eight. And, but then by the time they were like 10 or 12, they completely caught up to the standard American and Australian model of like starting kids, kids who had started at four or five, because it's like, there are a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of lessons that a kid can't learn until the kid's ready. Uh, but then as soon as, as soon as the child is ready, then the child will discover it themselves by observing the world. I don't think we're anywhere close to working out how to educate children. I don't think we're anywhere near close enough, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. But I think people are aware of it. There are many breakaway groups. There are people who want to self, you know, they homeschool kids because of that. 
You know, there's these wonderful schools in the UK where they just let them wander around the, the forest. I don't know what they do. It's true, you know. <laughs> I think they're too regimented children, you know. And, yeah. Um, yeah, but I think that art is very therapeutic. It is to me. You know. the, the therapeutic aspect of art, like you were talking about. Just, you know, it's you, you go into a zone, you know, whether it's because I paint as well as I, I've gone back to playing the piano. You just go into a zone. It's got nothing. There's no consequences. To really do art, there mustn't be a consequence. You don't have to earn a living. You don't have to get a certain amount of audiences in. You're just fulfilling, creating a an output. I don't even know how to generalize it, you know. And um, you feel it when you're painting, you know. You just go into a different world. It's... Um, and there are no consequences. It doesn't matter, you know, what you, you're free for. It's an expression that I use. Free fall. Mm-hmm. Just free falling is a very wonderful sense of there being no consequence to the art that you're doing. It doesn't have to get approval. It just is. It just is happening, you know, and you're involved and you are, the output is coming through you. It's called creation, I suppose. Don't know. Beautiful. Mm. Do you have uh, any messages for young people who feel like they're not doing that? It's so hard, you know. I think the world has become so damn complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very complicated world. I wouldn't put another message on it. Follow your instincts, that's all. If you find something that you love, just stick to it and do it. If something interests you, if it intrigues you, if it fascinates you, just do it, you know. That's the core of who you are. Don't know how, but just find a way. As long as it's not destructive or hurting anybody. Jose, mm-hmm. uh, well, Mira, it's been an absolute pleasure. And you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Wonderful to have met you. If uh, someone wants to go see The God of Isaac, how do they do that? Shalom. have to watch the Shalom website. That will be next year, September. What is that? Shalom.edu.au? Yep. Yeah. All right, fantastic. Tomorrow, Blumenthal, thanks for coming on the show. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.